Okay, let's open up now to 1 Thessalonians. We are in chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 13 through 18. The title of this message is Happy Christian Hope, also known as the rapture. Happy Christian Hope, the rapture this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we will read verses 13 through 18. First, first blah, blah, blah. tongue-tied already. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul writes and says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, a glorious promise before us. A glorious promise, a supernatural, not normal, radical promise in front of us of you coming for your people, us being united with you and reunited with loved ones who have died in the Lord and faith in you. A glorious promise, a day that is called in the New Testament, the blessed hope, a day that we look forward to. So this morning, Lord, with this promise, encourage our hearts. Thank you that he who promises faithful, you're faithful, God, to fulfill all your promises. And so encourage us with that truth and these truths and cause us to live in a way that are consonant with them, faithful to them. Help us to have hope this morning where we grieve. Help us to have fervency where we're complacent. Help us to pursue holiness where we're not, Lord, in light of your coming for us. Please now, Lord, help me to teach and preach in a way that's faithful to you, brings glory to your name, and is helpful to this church. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this week was a busy week. Part of it was busy just doing pastor stuff. You know pastor stuff. Funerals, weddings, stuff like that. And I got to sit with a couple this week in our church, a young couple. They're getting married on September 5th. And I got to sit with them and talk about their wedding ceremony. This is actually one of my favorite things that I get to do as a Christian. Because it's so cool when two young people are about to get married. Just that excitement and that fervency and that cute little thing that's going on, you know what I mean? Their love for one another and the excitement. And I love sitting down together and just talking about the ceremony. Okay, what are your hopes and your dreams? And here's always, this is always the case. The girl has been dreaming of this for decades. 
And the guy is generally like smart enough to say, yeah, whatever she wants, pastor, whatever she says. And I I know that's going to be a good relationship when he's got that attitude. And this one wasn't much different. It was the same. But I love sitting down and talking about the symbolism of a Christian wedding ceremony and what the various aspects of it mean and what it means that the man is dressed in black and the woman is dressed in white, a picture of Christ on the cross and the bride washed by the blood and why we might take communion at a wedding ceremony and the picture of the rings and the exchanging of life and the covenantal vows before God. It's just a fun thing to do. Fun thing to do. I was also confronted this week um, with the knowledge of some people in our body who are sick and, quite frankly, perhaps nearing the end. There may be in my future some funerals to do. And it's interesting, in the last few years, I've done more funerals than I have weddings. I'm not, I'm not sure why that is. And funerals now are different for me than they were before. Maybe because I'm older, maybe because I'm more mature, maybe because of the death of my daughter a couple years ago, but there's a different thing about funerals for me now. There's a, I don't know, there's, there's a depth to the experience. For me, it even outweighs weddings. There's, there's a depth to that experience. But they're also different for me now in another way, in that there's real hope at these funerals. For someone who has died in the Lord, there's real hope. And of course, I can't help but think about the people that I've lost in my life when I do one of these. I think we all do that. We go to a funeral and we're thinking about certain people that have gone or, or may go soon. We have those thoughts. But there's a hope that has been formed in my life about death, funerals, and the reality of that through this passage This has been one of the most important passages in my life because of the way that death has touched my life. And that's the issue of the text here. Paul was with the church in Thessalonica for just a short little time. And it's evident that in his short time, he taught them a lot. They must have been in Bible studies all day long, seven days a week in Thessalonica. I mean, he taught them a lot. He was only with them for a short time. Oh man, microphone trouble. Lord, heal my microphone in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, one of the things that he had spoke to them about was the coming of the Lord for his people. And no doubt he gave it to them like Jesus gave it to us. You know, Jesus repeatedly, when he spoke about his return, talked about the issue of imminence. Not to be confused with imminence. Imminence with an A after the M means to be present or operating within. That's not the word. Imminence with an I after the M means it could happen at any moment, right? Like the, the arrival of the Westmont students was imminent. It was coming soon. We, we talk about the coming of the Lord in that way, that, that it's imminent. And Jesus talked about it that way. And Jesus used all this language like, be ready, be watching, be aware, be prepared. It could happen at any time. And in light of the way that Christ framed that, we see throughout the New Testament this really immediate expectancy. Seems that those living in the New Testament certainly expected the coming of the Lord to happen in their lifetimes. And it's meant to be that way for every generation. 
It's not a mistake that they expected and oh, they got it wrong, they blew it. And it's meant to be that way. Because Jesus said, no man knows the day nor the hour. We are to live with a certain expectation. And for these believers in Thessalonica, gosh, that, that experience, that expectation was so real that they were worried about Christians who had died already and so missed the coming of the Lord for his people. That's the issue in the text, right? We see it there in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now that word asleep is a Christian euphemism or gentle way of saying dead. We see that in the New Testament. If you have the New Living Translation, it doesn't beat around the bush. It says, for those who are dead. This comes from the Old Testament. You'll remember that often kings and prophets were spoken of when they died in this way. And they went to go sleep with their fathers. Right? It meant that they, like their fathers, grandfather, so on and so forth, were now dead. Jesus picks up on this language in the New Testament. He talks about Lazarus as being asleep, though he was clearly dead. His sister said he's been dead for four days. By now he stinketh in the old King James. There was a young girl in Mark chapter 5 who had died. She was definitely dead. Her mom said so. And Jesus spoke of her as being asleep. It wasn't a denial of the reality of, the, of death. It's, it's a way of speaking about the temporary nature of death for God's people. It's not teaching soul sleep. That when we die, our soul is in some unconscious state until it's reunited with our body. That's not what it's teaching. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Consciously present with the Lord. What that idea of the New Testament using the euphemism sleep for death is getting at is that it is temporary in nature for the Christian. That is to say just as sleep is followed by an awakening for those who have put their faith in Christ, death is followed by a resurrection. Patterned on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What do we sing about death and Jesus? Death could not hold him down. What do we say on that wonderful holiday Easter? We say, oh, we say help Jesus with a dumb microphone. We say Christ is risen, and he is risen indeed, right? Christ is risen. And that's why this phraseology is used here, and that's what the text is teaching us about. And I have been thankful for this text in my life because it it touches the issue of bereavement, right? Missing someone who is absent, usually through death. That's something that we are all going to experience. And it's difficult because God didn't make us to die. God made us to live. We weren't originally equipped with this death thing and dealing with death. That's why it's so difficult when we face it in its various forms. And death is cruel in our world. It's the result of sin in our world. And so scripture calls death an enemy. That's the way that scripture speaks about death. An enemy who is to be defeated by Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. Amen. And so there's great hope that's been so helpful to me and others in this text. Again, look at verses 15 and 16. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, 
right? Claim of authority there. All, all scripture is inspired by God, but it, but it appears this is something that God communicated directly to him, maybe in his time in Arabia. For this we say to you by, way of the, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay, we'll unpack those details in a moment. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. There it is. The resurrection of Christians who have died in bodily form at the coming of the Lord for his people. There is substance, the substance of our hope. Those that were missing, those that are gone, those that have been gone throughout the millennia will be resurrected bodily when Christ returns for his people. Can you imagine the moments? I have to imagine that moment frequently. Because for me, it's just where it connects most right now in my life. I, I miss my daughter Daisy every single day. Still remember the way she smelled. How her lips felt. How many freckles she had. It's so near to me. It's so real. But I, I have these wonderful promises of God's word. And the struggle, part of the tension of Christian life, is to connect our emotions and our faith in a way that's faithful. It's part of the struggle. To connect the reality, the right sense of our emotions, and the truth of the word of God in a way that's faithful. This text helps us to do that. But more importantly, this text deals with another separation. The separation between us and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We go to when we're bereaved, the details about those that we love and the fact that they'll be resurrected and we'll see them again in some bodily recognizable form. And so we should. It sounds like someone is eating Cheetos in my microphone. <laughs> I'll switch microphones next service, but can we, we'll just deal with it, huh? Thank you. The thrust of the text is not that, the thrust, not that we will be reunited with those whom have died, but that we will be united with Christ forever. That's the main thrust of it. I mean, I imagine the moment all the time when I'll see her again. I think about it all the time. How old will she be? What will she look like? What length will her hair be? Because it's always different, you know, because the chemo would fall out and then she'd grow it again and then she'd relapse and she'd lose it again. And it was always different. In glory, what will she look like? What will it be like? What will it feel like to hold her again? But I have to believe that the glory of Jesus will even outweigh that. That's the thrust of the text. 
As much as we can't wait to see those whom we love, the power of the text is the phrase, and thus we will always be with the Lord. This text deals with that separation, that longing to be with our Savior. And it's part of the promise that nothing can ultimately separate us from him. Romans chapter 8 comes to mind, doesn't it? For I am convinced that neither death, there it is, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the good news that is shown to us in a tangible, picturesque sort of way in this text. Because there are times in life where we feel as though something has separated us from God in some way. And sometimes life seems so difficult and cruel and long and tumultuous that we look forward to more than ever this day of union. That promise is showed forth in reality in an event In this text, there's a great reunion promised with those whom we miss and love, Christians that have died in Christ, and with Christ himself. There is a great reunion promise in this text. Jesus first spoke of this thing in the Gospel of John in the 14th chapter. Look what he said to his followers before he left. Do not let your heart be troubled. Talking about the fact that he would leave and they would experience challenges. Believe in God, believe also in me. Right? His claim is the son of God there. Look what he says. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, and he did, and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and he will. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's the intention of the text. That's the heartbeat of God. That God wants to be with his people. That has always been the intent. When he created us, he put us in the garden and God was there with us. Our rebellion came, sin came, and that communion was broken, but God has always endeavored to restore this with thing. So he commanded Moses to make the tabernacle, and he said about it, there I will meet with my people, and my people can meet with me. God's ancient desire to be with us because he loves us. And then he said, let's let's make this thing a little more durable. Let's build the temple in Jerusalem and I will place my presence in the temple that my people can always come there and meet with and be with me and I will be with them. God's desire fulfilled in another way. And then when Jesus comes, we're told that his name would be Emmanuel, God with us. So that John started out his gospel by saying, in the beginning was a word, speaking of Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. And then about the 14th verse, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
another expression of God's desire to be with the people he loves. God with us. And the end game of it all, as we study in the book of Revelation, the end game of it all is God with us. Revelation 21, of course. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. That doesn't mean there's no surfing. It's a Jewish idiom for separations among people. I hope. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That's the intent. That's the desire. That's what God has wanted to do. That is why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to seek and save those who were lost and to die on the cross in our place that we might be forgiven for our sins, the separation, the veil removed, and us brought to God in relationship. And the text before us is a beautiful expression, picture of that day when we are united in a particular way being with the Lord, is coming for his people. So the question that looms always when you begin to dive into this text is, well, when? When? Because now would be nice. I often say that. You hear young couples who are just falling in love sometimes say, I hope the Lord doesn't come too soon. I want to experience marriage. Okay. When we understand the implications of us being united to Christ in glory, always with the Lord, this reality taking place, everything else pales in comparison. The ancient cry of the church is, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus, come, come soon. The posture of the church as, as dictated by Christ is one of waiting, expectancy, we're supposed to be thinking and wondering and hoping when. And there's a few details that need to be sorted through there. There's a couple different ways to talk about it. Question that, that is debated within the church is, is this part of the second coming that we studied about in Revelation 19? Is this part of the second coming or is this a separate event that some would call the rapture of the church? It's not that there's two comings, there's not two second comings, excuse me. There are two comings, the first coming when Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. The second coming when he returns in glory and establishes his kingdom. But there are not two second comings. Even if the event is separate in time from the second coming of Jesus Christ, it's not called a second second coming. There's the coming of the Lord for his people what we see right here. And then there's the coming of the Lord to the earth to establish his kingdom. What we seem to see here is that this is primarily a movement of God's people to heaven. Right? Did you see that in verse 17? Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. There's that language. 
Latin word is raptus, therefore we say rapture, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So this event is primarily a movement of Christ's people to heaven to be with him at a particular time. Where the second coming is primarily a movement of Christ with his people to earth to establish his kingdom on earth. There's, there's some difference there. So there's difference of opinion. Some would say, well, they, they happen at the same time. So the Lord comes, right? The, the official second coming, Revelation 19 stuff. The dead in Christ arise. We are changed. We'll get to that in 1 Corinthians 15 in a moment, right? We're, we're transformed. We're caught up in the clouds to meet him. And then we all come together to earth and he establishes his kingdom and we're in resurrected bodies. Totally possible. Others would say, well, this rapture thing, this thing in the text happens sometime before the second coming. Normally they would want to say it happens before the tribulation period. Now, now we talked a lot about the tribulation period when we studied the book of Revelation because most of the book of Revelation is about the tribulation period. And there are good reasons why we might say, well, this thing, the coming of the Lord for his people might happen before the tribulation. There's two predominant views, pre-trib, before, and post-trib, after. There's some mid-trib stuff, but we'll ignore it. Pre-trib, post-trib. Post would be that this event is the same as the second coming. He comes, we're caught up, we're translated, dead in Christ rise, establishes a kingdom on earth. Pre is that before that seven-year tribulation period, we, God's people, are taken up to heaven to be with him, that we won't experience the tribulation period. Now, it's an open debate, and I, it's totally cool, which, whichever one you are, it's, No big deal to me. It's a secondary issue. Never divides us. I think it happens pre-trib, pre-tribulation. If you don't, no big deal. I'll explain it to you on the way up. You're good at that. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'll explain it to you right now, briefly. Think about the nature of the tribulation period as we studied it in our study of the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation 6, the last two verses right here. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? That's at the very beginning of the tribulation period. And then repeatedly throughout the tribulation period, we see it denoted as the wrath of God on an unrepentant world. There are other things going on. There's the wrath of the dragon happening, right? And there's world things happening. But it's primarily God's wrath on an unrepentant world. Tribulation period. We study that. Look in verse, excuse me, chapter 1 of Thessalonians and see what it says in verse 10. Turn there in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians, you're already there. Chapter 1, verse 10. Start in verse 9 for a little context. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So they're not unrepentant. These are the repentant. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
That's, that's important. Who delivers us from the wrath to come. So if the tribulation period is primarily God's wrath poured out on an unrepentant world, we have, through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, been delivered from the wrath to come. Ultimately from eternal wrath and judgment, but also it would make sense from wrath as it's poured out on earth. Chapter 5 says the same thing. If we want to look in verse 9, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says, for God has not destined us for wrath, speaking to believers, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. So what we believe as Christians is that Jesus died on the cross in our place that we might be forgiven of our sins. And when that happened, he took the wrath of God for us. And so the wrath that we had stored up in our rebellion to God has been dealt with at the cross. So Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no more wrath for us. Christ took it all for us. We who have put our faith in Jesus' work on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So if Christ already took our wrath, we're not destined to wrath. He saves us from the wrath to come, the text says here, and we have been made righteous in him. And it is unlike God to punish the righteous and the unrepentant in the same way. That's what we were learning in the flood with Noah, the righteous, and those who went on the flood with him. That's what was being taught to us when Abraham argued God down about his destruction of Sodom. And his argument was, God, it's not in your character to treat the righteous and the wicked alike. Look at Genesis 18, verse 25. Far be it from you, Abraham speaking to God, to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Becomes an issue of the justice of God. And so it wouldn't make sense that we then would experience the wrath of God during the tribulation period. That would be double wrath. Jesus already took our wrath and now we're getting God's wrath. I don't see it that way. But if you're post-trib, totally cool. There's much more to it, but there is also the doctrine of eminence. Now, this might be a little detailed for some people. It's okay. You don't have to understand everything in a sermon. But the doctrine of eminence, again, as we already mentioned, Jesus put us in this posture that it might happen at any time. Right? The New Testament, we see that. That's why they were tripping when Christians were already dying. They're like, wait a minute. People in our church are dying. Jesus hasn't come yet. Like, should should happen really soon. When when is this going to happen? That's the posture of the New Testament. That's to be the posture of the Christian. But for the second coming, the coming of Jesus in victory to establish his kingdom on earth, there are clear signs that precede that. If we look at the book of Daniel, or we look at Matthew, Matthew 24, if we look at the book of Revelation, there are clear signs that precede the second coming. So it wouldn't be so imminent. It would be like, yeah, this has got to happen. And yet we have this tension of the doctrine of imminence that it could happen at any time. 
The rapture, this understanding of it, of a pre-trib rapture, sort of supports that idea. We're not in the tribulation period. There are no definite signs that must precede the rapture of the church. It could happen at any moment. I think that's how we're supposed to live. I think that radically informs and affects and transforms the way that we live. And I think that was the intention of Christ and the intention of the New Testament. I think that's the truth, the reality, that Christ could come for his people when? At any moment. How about now? Would have been nice. Let's leave when behind for a moment and concentrate on what? We already got the why. God wants to be with his people. Let's look at some of the glorious details of the text as they connect with Paul's intent. Again, the intent of the text here is that believers would be comforted by the glorious truth of the resurrection concerning Christian loved ones who had died. Again, verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Look at the implications. That you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. That you may not grieve as do the rest that have no hope. In Paul's time, as in our time, bless you, there were all sorts of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Ideologies, uh, understandings, thoughts about death and its permanence and what happens, and lack thereof. So that oftentimes a funeral during Paul's time was a hopeless thing. It seemed as though for many that death was the final word. The ultimate separation. And Paul is telling them that's not the Christian truth. We know something different. The death is an enemy who's been defeated by Christ upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and death does not have the final word. That's what he's telling him here. That just as Christ is risen from the dead, believers will be risen from the dead in the future. So go ahead and grieve, but not like everybody else, because we have hope. See how this text saves us? You see how this text has saved my life in the last couple of years? We have real hope. And maybe you've been there, you've been at a funeral where, man, it's just hopeless. Those are, those are dark moments for everyone involved. That's not our reality. Death doesn't win. Death doesn't have the final word. Death, when you're in Christ, is not final. Now, it's right for Christians to grieve. But we have to, again, bring our grief, bring our emotions some way to connect with scriptural truth. That's how we get through the day. It's right for us to grieve. But we do not grieve apart from the hope of resurrection and the coming of the Lord for his people. We don't bifurcate those. That's a reality. So we bring that scriptural truth to bear on our grief. Go ahead and grieve, but don't grieve as those who have no hope because we have hope in Christ. Go ahead and grieve. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus even though he knew he would resurrect him. 
There's still something about death and that separation, though it's not forever, that is to be grieved, of course. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he would resurrect him. Therefore, his weeping wasn't hopeless. It wasn't hopeless weeping. It wasn't grief without hope. Hope in a Christian New Testament context is not like we use it colloquially or popularly. We say, oh, you know, I I really hope there's waves next week. It's not like that. Or I hope I get that promotion. Or I, I hope it's not foggy next June. It's not that sort of hope. Hope in a New Testament sense denotes confidence and something that is promised by God and so sure. That's what hope means. It's not only hope, maybe. It's hope that transforms the way that we think, feel, and live because it's based on a promise from God. The promise here is that death does not have the final word, that there will be a resurrection. And what is the basis of that hope? The basis of that hope is Christ's own resurrection. Again, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do we believe it? Let me pause right there for a moment. You cannot be a Christian if you don't believe that. That is an essential part of the historic biblical Christian faith. A bodily resurrection. Not a spiritual resurrection, so to speak. Not he didn't resurrect, but it was still an important message. It is an essential part of the Christian faith that we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He's basing it on that. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, just as much, in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Speaking of this resurrection hope, the promise of resurrection, based on Christ's own resurrection. It's hard for us to believe sometimes with our 21st century Western rationalism. I mean, this is supernatural stuff. This is supernatural stuff. That there's going to be a resurrection of believers. But it's based on Christ's resurrection. And if we believe that Christ rose from the dead, then he certainly has the power to raise us from the dead. To not believe that would be inconsistent, incongruent. It's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That glorious promise and the power thereof. The same power that rose Christ from the dead is that which works in us. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 as we see a little bit of this. 1 Corinthians 15. How's the temperature for you guys? Great? Cold? Yeah, I'm I'm slightly freezing. We'll see if we can adjust it. We've been at church now for 12 years and we still cannot figure out AC. It's always too hot or too cold, but maybe the problem is me. Maybe it's us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's start reading in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... That's what we preach. Christ crucified and resurrected. How do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? It's for people who are disregarding the doctrine of the resurrection of the believer. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Uh Uh-oh, that's heavy 
doctrinal connection. The Bible hinges it on Christ's resurrection, our resurrection. It says it's not that one or the other, like either they're both true or neither are true. It's a big deal. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also in vain. You see that? There's no Christianity without belief in the resurrection. If Christ hasn't been resurrected, then we have no salvation. There's nothing to sing about. Nothing to praise about. Nothing to hope in. This is another guy who died in the Middle East at the hands of the Romans. But if he rose from the dead, then his claim that he is the son of the living God, the way, the truth, and the life is true. It's a big deal. Verse 15, moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. He's saying this thing, this future belief of the resurrection of, G- of, the resurrection of believers is not so it's not so from outer space. It's part of God's plan. Resurrection. To redeem our bodies. Verse 16. For the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. See that? Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's that euphemism, fallen asleep. So if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead and we don't believe in the resurrection, then the whole thing falls apart, and those who are Christians but have died are gone forever. Death did have the final word. There is an ultimate separation. It's crumbled on the rejection of the doctrine of the resurrection. That's why Easter is a big deal. Verse 19, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, right? Just like I have these lime trees in my backyard and they've got all these limes on them right now. But there was a lime that was first. And when that first lime came on the tree, I was like, okay, this is good. There's gonna be more of those. Jesus was the first lime. When he came, In resurrected glory, we said, oh, okay, this is good. God does this as he promised all throughout scripture. First fruits, that's the idea of first fruits. Of those who have fallen asleep, Christians who have died. Verse 21, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Juxtaposition of Adam and Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Bodily resurrection. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Referring to that event that we're looking at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Resurrection of the believers. Now let's skip some verses because Paul is rather verbose here. And let's go to verse 50. Verse 50. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 50. Now he says... He speaks, rather, about the same event that we're looking at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 50, he says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Not every Christian is going to die or experience death. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, At the last trumpet, 
Same event. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. There it is. There it is. The dead shall be raised imperishable, meaning glorified bodies that are built to last for eternity. This body is not eternal. Look in the mirror. It's not eternal. It's decaying. But there is a resurrected form of this body that's fit for eternity. Christ's physical body died truly on the cross, but he was resurrected in glory and a new resurrection body and he lives forever and thus shall we also be. That's, that's the idea here. The dead in Christ shall be raised in perishable. And then it says, and we shall be changed. So if this event happens in our lifetime, those who are still alive, 1, Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians 4 said, we'll be caught up in the sky to meet the Lord and we will immediately have resurrected bodies. No more bad knees, Al. No more bad back, Pops. None of it. Resurrected, built to last forever with Jesus in glory bodies. You say, oh, how old will I be in my glorified body? No idea. I have a theory, but I won't share it. (laughs) Verse 53. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, right? This body's perishable, like cheese. Must put on the imperishable. (laughs) That was too close to home for some of us. And this mortal must put on immortality. There it is. This promise of immortality in Christ. Verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortal, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, in light of these wonderful truths, be steadfast and immovable. There's a good phrase. Pause right there. Be steadfast and immovable. Sometimes we feel as though the ways of this world and the woes of this world and the losses and the trials and the tribulations will overwhelm us. But we have a better promise. We have a better truth. And so we're told to be steadfast. Be immovable. It's talking about in our walk with the Lord and our relationship with him and our our service to him. Nothing that happens in this world has final sway. Christ is king and he's coming for his people. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable and, and it says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Abound in the work of the Lord. There's other things that we're... There's other things that we're going to do in this lifetime, other work, and that's great. That's, that's part of life. That's part of God's design. But make sure that in some way in your life, you are abounding in work for the Lord. Who can reject that? Why would we not give careful attention to that? Working with your hands is good. That's part of God's plan. Other things that you do in your life, that's good. That's part of God's plan. 
but in some way, aspire to abound in work for the Lord. For that one thing is never in vain. There's a lot of stuff I've done in my life that's probably in vain. Working for the Lord will never be in vain because of the doctrine of the resurrection and eternity with him. Back to 1 Thessalonians as we finish now. I heard when Ryan was teaching for me a few weeks ago, he revealed my trick of saying, finally, as we finish. (laughs) It's not my trick, it's Paul's trick. He said, finally, in the first verse of chapter four, he's still going and I'm still going. Again, verses 15 and 16, just now that we have a little more background. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 and 16. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Their resurrection is actually just before ours. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Man, that's just big drama stuff. Drama in a good sense. I mean, this is big stuff. The Lord descending, the shout of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and then bodies being resurrected of dead Christians. I mean, that's what it teaches. That's what it says. The Jews also had this hope. That's why when you go to Israel or any believing Jew anywhere in the world, they're always buried facing the Temple Mount in Jerusalem based on the belief that when Messiah comes, he'll come to the Temple Mount, and thus he will, and they'll be resurrected this way, and the first thing they'll see is the Messiah. When you go to Jerusalem, you see all these Jewish graves all around the city, and they're all facing the western gate of the Temple Mount, the gate beautiful where Messiah is expected to come, so that when they're resurrected, I don't know if it's going to work that way or not, but it's going to work. Resurrected bodies in glory. You may be asking the question, well, where have the dead been if they're without their body? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 is pretty clear. It says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There it is. A paraphrase thereof. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So in some way, when Christians die right now, they go to be with the Lord. I don't know if... Gee, Help us, Lord. I don't, I don't know if uh, there's some sort of different intermediary body until they get the resurrected body here. I, I don't know. I don't know anything about that or if it's just in a disembodied form. I, I don't know. There's different speculations, but they're with the Lord. There's wonderful confidence in that, right? My, my daughter died two years ago. Where is she? She's with Jesus. And someday I'll see her again in glory and some glorious, cancer-free, recognizable, eternal, always together, always with Jesus form. So you see how this text helps us? This text helps us. It helps us as sufferers, as mourners, as people who lose, who experience death. The final verse is, verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. There's great comfort in this. There's encouragement in it, as we saw from 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast, 
Be immovable. There's exhortation in it. Look at these couple of verses from 1 John. Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shriek away from him in shame at his coming. See how great of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God and such we are. Beloved, now we are children of God. It's not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we'll see him just as he is. Resurrected bodies. Look what it says in verse three. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, Jesus, purifies himself just as he is pure. This doctrine of the return of Jesus for his people is to have a purifying effect in our lives exactly because of what Jesus said. It could happen at any moment. Therefore, it just makes sense. Therefore, live in a faithful way. The Lord may come at any time. And we know that sometime after we're collected to him, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account on how we've been faithful in this life with the things he gave us to be faithful with. We'll give an account. We won't be judged for our sins or condemned because Christ took him for us. But we will be evaluated on faithfulness and then rewarded accordingly. So, live in a way that's faithful because that day could come at any time. So rid yourself of the language of tomorrow, I'll repent. Next week, I'll get serious. I'll serve the Lord then. I'll get it together then. I'll I'll make it count then. I'll pursue wholeness in my marriage then. I'll be a more faithful father then. I'll witness to my coworker then. Today is the day. Christ may come at any time. Some of us need to hear that. Live faithfully for Jesus today. Abound. It's like Cheetos, a chipmunk. Abound in work for the Lord. Some of you need to hear that today. Some of you just need to hear it. Be steadfast and movable. Persevere. Life is hard, but Jesus is coming. Some of us need to hear, be comforted. You'll see them again. And even more wonderful. We will be with the Lord forever. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for these wonderful truths and the way that they encourage us. We look forward to the great reunion of us with you. And we just pray that until that time, you you would just help us by the Holy Spirit to be faithful. Maybe we need to be faithful with our grief. Maybe we need to be faithful with our work. Maybe we need to be faithful with our marriages, our witness, whatever it is. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be faithful. Speak to us about those things in our lives. And help us now, Lord, to press into you. Holy Spirit, that you would come manifest the sweetness of Jesus in this place. That we would have a little foretaste For Christ is already Emmanuel, God with us. Help us to know and believe, rejoice in and experience the presence of God in this place. May the nearness of God be our good. May the joy of the Lord be our strength. Help us, Holy Spirit, to draw near to and exalt and obey Jesus.